not about knowing exactly the thing that you want. It's just about working in a certain direction and working hard and having faith. That is Andy Boric, and this is the Sugar Bench Adventure Podcast. All right, the pod continues. Welcome back or welcome to the show. This is episode number 24. Just really honored and, and thankful to have Andy Boric on. He brings in so much knowledge. Not only is he a great person, he has a huge skill set from a wilderness perspective that we talk about today. I really just want to tap into that and continue to connect with people all over the United States. And this has been such a year of growth, although there is a lot of negativity and a lot of challenges going on right now. I just want to push and continue to um, have that beginner's mindset. And this conversation really continues that journey for me. So just really grateful for that. We want to hear from folks too. If, if you think of anyone that might be good for the show, hit me up at thesugarbench at gmail.com. You can also check us out on Instagram at thesugarbench. We hope all is well. Sending lots of love everyone's way. And we hope you enjoy the show. Thanks, folks. All right, Andy. We have Andy Boric on here. Um, this is going to be better anyways, Andy. Uh, round two. So, Andy, one thing, there, there's lots of things that I want to dig into today. Um, but I think for our listeners, it may be good to give them a, a little bit of context. Um, I promise you the audio is recording at this point. And so you spent the last decade of your life um, with the U.S. Forest Service. And... So maybe just like a quick synopsis, because we're going to go kind of like um, micro a little bit and, and zoom in. Right. But just right. what, how, how you kind of got to that role and, um, and, yeah. and, you know, maybe where you are right now. So right now I am privileged enough to be the wilderness program coordinator for the Sulphur Ranger District of the Arapaho National Forest nice. based out of Granby, Colorado. So what that means is I am the main person that is in charge of the maintenance and monitoring of 82,000 acres of congressionally designated wilderness area within the state of Colorado. Mm. Uh, It's a really special thing. There aren't many people that have the job that I hold. And uh, it's it sort of was one of those things that I got lucky, and I also just took every opportunity that I could, mm-hmm. and eventually it sort of panned out for me. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, uh, I spent, so I've been a wilderness coordinator for the last six years. Previous to that, I spent uh, four or five years as a trails foreman, so my job was to specifically clear and maintain trails on the Sulphur Ranger District, um, build large-scale structures like bridges and other trail structures. Um, and before that, I worked in Western Washington as a grunt on a trail crew, you know, a trail crew member, yeah. just just digging in the dirt every day, cutting trees with chainsaws, you know, carrying chainsaws, cross-cut saws, eight, ten miles a day. Um, and then when I moved out west, I had already been a foreman for one year, off season, mm. in, in Washington, and it turned out that the area I happened to move to, Winter Park, Colorado, uh, was hiring for a wilderness coordinator or a, a trails coordinator, and I was already here, and it just worked. So it was sort of this amazing combination of I had all the skills, I had the passion and the drive, yeah. and it turned out that right where I ended up moving, they were hiring for, my, for a person that, I was well, a position I was well suited for, but it's been an incredible ride. And I, I honestly love being a public servant and I love being a steward of, of the natural world. Yeah. So I, I want to take a, a step back because I think it's fascinating for me growing up in the Northeast. Um, our, our park was the Adirondack park. Um, and, and it still is, I still like to ride there and, 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 you know, I haven't been hiking there in a couple of years, but that's where we grew up hiking and, and learning about the wilderness. What what was it like for you to go from someone that grew up in the Northeast and you went to the University of Maine, right? You Maine. Yeah. And so then and then I, and then it's so yeah. big out west. I mean, it's it's just it's different, yeah. right? Oh, uh, it's like not the same planet, honestly. Right. Um, 
you know, I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to college at the University of Maine, like you said. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, like my, I think my junior year of college, I spent the summer in New Mexico mm. at uh, Philmont Scout Ranch as a Philmont Ranger. And that was my first summer out west. And it just completely blew me away yeah. at how big it could be. And, uh, and it really inspired me to understand that, you know, you can do what you want to do with your life. And there's a lot of country out there and there's a lot of space to roam. And if you want a certain lifestyle, if you want to live close to the land and have accessibility to the outdoors, then the West is the place to be. Right on. How did how did that creep into your life though? Because I mean, we we we, ha, we have three kids now. We have a um, we have a nature preserve four miles from our house that we take the kids. We have um, a national park that we go to. We have a um, a state park that we go to. Like we're trying to instill that idea of um, public land and, and using it and being a steward. And and that started for me when I was young too. I grew up on a farm, and, and the idea of nature was important. Did, when did you start to like kind of clue into the fact that there's some real um, kind of like something really important there in that? Was that a, like a, a young thing for you? As far as being attached to, to nature yeah, specifically? Yeah, just, just, no, well, just in, in specifically, because I'm sure it happened at a younger age than your junior year, but do you oh, have yeah. any, any moments where you were like, you know, th- th- there's something really powerful here um, as you're growing up? You know, I, I came up through the scouting program. I'm a large uh, proponent of the Boy Scouts of America, and I had an incredibly positive experience going through the Boy Scouts. And as an Eagle Scout, it was like, you know, the thing that I was so focused on as a child, I remember, like, spending nights planning out how I was going to pack my backpack, planning out how I, what I was going to take. And, like, I really really got taken over by the idea that I was going to go into the woods and like live there and then come back out. Right. And when I was really, really young, like, you know, 12, 13, 14, something like that, that was a founding principle of, of that drive. And I think for me right now, now that I'm 35 to, to live a life outdoors. And my parents were always incredibly good at inspiring me to be outside. We always were going camping and we're always, you know, involved in the out of doors. But for me, as an individual growing up, that the world of scouting was what set me up for success and set me up with the lifelong relationship of the out of doors. Right. That's so cool. So that that was like an early, an early thing for you. Um, yeah. That's great. So um, w- one thing I I, I wanted to kind of um, to talk about is that. Um, is like as a school counselor um personally I'm, I'm like fascinated with the idea of of career fit and when i hear you talk like um it, it sounds like you've you've found something that fits for you and i was just wondering like what your approach was i know as a junior you started to kind of clue into that was something for you but um in terms of like coming to that realization that 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 is like the career you know that that fits your personality so well because as I work with people, it's like one, like the, your idea of a good time may sound like, you know, terrible for someone else. Yeah. Like the idea of sleeping outside, you know, like that's really hard. Yeah. I mean, my daily life or my, my daily work week is I wake up on Thursday morning at my own home. I pack up a backpacking backpack with four days of self-sufficient items that I need to survive. And I, and I complete a backcountry patrol Thursday through through Sunday night. So mm-hmm. I'm if it's June, I'm cutting trees off of the trail and creating drainages and trying to fix everything that winter undid for me. Yeah. You know, if it's August or September when the trails are clear, I'm making public contacts. I'm enforcing laws. Mm-hmm. I'm writing tickets. You know, I'm making. And I'm like, I'm the whole time. I'm backpacking You're i'm backpacking. a self-sufficient backpacking ranger yeah. you know <laughs> and that's during the field season the other end you know the spring and the fall i am writing grants i'm planning i'm hiring you know and i'm trying to manage this large tract of public land for the betterment of the people right 
So I think the best way to circle back to your question uh-huh. of like finding your career is my strategy was I'm I know that I want to do something in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. That I knew I knew that right. I didn't have any kind of a qualm about that. Um, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do outdoors, but I knew I wanted to do something that involved being outdoors. And yeah. when I went to college, I have a I have a major in environmental management and policy, but my minor is business administration. And so my plan in college was to open up my own guiding business. Mm. I thought that I wanted to share my passion for being outside with other people. That was what I wanted to do. Um, and when I graduated college, I actually moved to Washington State for a couple of years, and I started volunteering, doing trail work on the weekends with this nonprofit called Washington Trails Association, which is the largest volunteer-based trails-oriented nonprofit in the world. They're fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like that work the physical labor and being outside so much that I actually quit the desk job that I had as an executive for the Boy Scouts of America to be a volunteer trail coordinator for like 10 bucks an hour, yeah, you know, right. for the next summer because I liked it so much, the quality of life I had of being outside and, and like talking to people and teaching them how to do trail work was, it was like, oh, this is way better, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it, right. fulfill, it, it fulfills me so much better. Yeah, I, I I think I think that's pretty cool that you've been able to um to combine you know your love of the outdoors with a career. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about you know as I read through your your profile and get a chance to to learn more about you. I think that's so cool. Um, I I want to jump in because I, I've been trying to wrap my head around like um so you you said you oversee like eighty two thousand acres of of congressionally designated wilderness area. And, and I think for the Northeast, everything's kind of tight. What, what does that mean? I mean, like, and I love how in your title it says non-motorized. I mean, you're not going around on like a, you know, a quad or a four-wheeler checking all this stuff out. I mean, a lot of this stuff is really remote, right? Like, Oh, absolutely. So, um, so the United States Forest Service specifically, we're going to talk about the Forest Service as a single land management mm-hmm. agency, which there are, there are others like the United States Park Service, right? But I work for the United States Forest Service, Forest Service. and there are differences there. And we'll, we can get into them whenever you'd like to, mm-hmm. but specifically talking about um, my job is that, and, and, how, and how wilderness works is, the Forest Service is the largest land owner in the country of the United States. They own the most land. Mm-hmm. They oversee the most land. Um, but that land belongs to the people. It's public land. And so within the United States Forest Service are areas that are specifically set aside for, as wilderness. A lot of people use that word wilderness to describe just the woods, mm-hmm. right? But for me, and many people that live out west and are outdoors-oriented individuals, wilderness is a special type of public land. So the Wilderness Act of 1964, which if you're a historian or interested at all in mm-hmm. outdoor history, that, that's a big turning point. Um, after, like, the Hoover Dam and the flooding of Glen Canyon, and then there was a proposed flooding of the Hetch Hetchy Project in, in Utah, there was a huge environmental pushback in the 60s. And eventually, this is the shortened version, you know, they passed the 1964 Wilderness Act, which, in essence created specific areas of actual quote-unquote wilderness mm-hmm. within within the national forest system land that in would always be kept in their natural state right and so there are more areas that have been added since 1964 none of the wildernesses i actually administer are original 1964 wilderness areas but so so those areas that i administer these congressionally designated wilderness areas are areas that have been put forth to Congress and voted on to be protected forever. So that means that there are no motors allowed. The only modes of travel are primitive foot and horse. There are no mechanized instruments allowed. You can't use a chainsaw in wilderness, so we use two-man cross-cut saws (laughs) to clear trails. No way. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. Right on. Um, And so you can't fly drones in wilderness. Right can't use hang gliders, all things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So these areas 
specifically are protected by Congress as an area where man is intended to be a visitor. Mm-hmm. And I just really resonate with that. Yeah, right on. And and I think I think for me, um, you know, when I when I hear you speak of that, like when you're walking through those trails, so. Um, for example, there, there's some rides that we can do around here, um, um, bike rides that I can do, that when you're on those roads, you can picture what it may have looked like. You know, they're, they're yeah. gravel roads, like maybe they're seven, eight feet wide. Um, you can picture what that would have looked like maybe 100 years ago. And I, and I think for you, when you're in that wilderness, if you were to drop someone in there from 200 years ago, 300 years ago, they probably wouldn't be able to tell, you know. It's the same. Yeah. No, we haven't we haven't logged it. We haven't done any mineral extraction in it. Right. You know, man has not touched these pristine places, and they're mm-hmm. protected because they are so. They were identified as being so pristine mm. and so high quality of a natural landscape that yeah. it, someone geniusly decided to set it aside. Right. Yeah. So what's that mean now? Like when we talk about like the Williams Fork fire, um, mm-hmm. is, is that problematic in the sense that there, there sometimes, and I've been reading up a little bit on, on wildfires just because I'm fascinated in it now. Um, sure. Because currently in, in our country is in a rough in rough shape in a lot of ways, but currently there's, there's active wildfires from California to I think Minnesota. Um, yeah. it, they're all over right now. So, but anyways, it, there, there's not a lot of natural breaks in no. in those wildernesses, right? Like, and there isn't supposed to be. Remember mm-hmm. that fire is a natural part of almost any forest ecology, right? So, and especially a western forest. Western forests evolve with fire as a way of life, right? We have. Trees, for example, the predominant species of pine in, in my valley, the Fraser Valley, is lodgepole pine. Mm-hmm. The lodgepole pine is a species of pine tree that its cones only open under the heat of fire. Right. So that tree has evolved to propagate with fire. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem, we're going to back up a couple steps here. Sure. The problem with... With, with the wildfires right now in the West, is that if you think about the culture, let's say since 1900, of man's relationship with wildfire, mm-hmm. for 50 years or more, for 70 years probably, since the 70s, the whole thing was put it out, put it out, put it out, put it out. And because we would put every single fire out as mm-hmm. fast as we could, right? what ended up happening is the forest grew old. Yeah. And all of that timber that falls naturally on the forest floor and every, let's say, 10 years, a fire goes through and cleans it up. Yeah, that's right? fuel, right? Right. It's fuel. It's, it's, it's how it's supposed to happen. But if you squash the fires mm-hmm. for 70 years yeah. and you've got 10 times the fuel load on the forest floor, when you actually get a wildfire, mm-hmm. you can't stop it anymore. Yeah, right. So the issue that we're having right now is because of some policies of firefighting from way back in the day where we didn't quite understand fire ecology, mm-hmm. we're running into this issue right now where now the fires that we're having are so big, so hot, that they're not cleaning the forest out, they're torching it right. to where it can't actually come back. Does that oh, make okay. sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because there's just such, there's such a big amount of, of just fuel there yes. to burn through. The available fuel load is so much higher than mm-hmm. it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this much. You're supposed to have a nice, neat fire that burns through the understory, and the mature trees live through it, mm-hmm. right? But when you've got so much fuel on the ground, it doesn't just burn out the ground. It just ladders right up, and it crown fires and runs, you know, 10 miles in, mm-hmm. in an afternoon, and just the whole forest has to start all over again, you know? Right. Um, can, can you speak to just, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of it's technical, but just in terms of what that looks like, you know, it, or your, your most recent experience with the Williams Fork fire, like, um, 
Is that something where you just go in for a shift or are you working on like a fire line? Um, like what, so, what's the goal when, when you jump into a shift with that? Me personally? Yeah. Well, all firefighters have a role right. basically to, pl- to play. The most basic is just a, a standard wildland firefighter and you might be a part of a hand crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just one type of firefighting unit where the hand crew would dig line adjacent to the fire. You never want to obviously dig line in front of the fire because it moves so fast. Yeah, right. It's just dangerous to be in front of the fire. But, you know, fires generally would go with the wind of their back, you know, or terrain. And mm-hmm. so if the fire is going up a drainage with the wind of its back, you could dig line with a hand crew or maybe with a bulldozer right. on either side of that fire's flanks and, in essence, kind of contain it. And yeah. it only has one direction to go right. is kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. So um, I've gone out as a, as a standard firefighter on a hand crew before. Most recently, the role that I typically play and I like to, and I like to serve is a fireline EMT. Right. So I'm, I, I am an EMT and I have been for a little while now. And so I like to be a fireline medic. So basically what that means is I'm digging line with the guys, you know, doing hand construction, but I'm there as a medical staff to, in case someone gets hurt. Right. Okay. Right on, man. That, so, um, in, in my, as I was looking, um, up, you know, more information on this, because I, I don't think that, um, growing up here gives you a good understanding of what the wildfires yeah, are like. Tough. I know that, um, every year in, um, the bat- the battlefield national park they they burn the stuff but it's not even yep. close to what like when we were out in estes park and we saw um what the damage you know that that can be done there mm-hmm. it's, it's incredible but um yeah I, I was i was understanding more about fire lines and and how that fire can jump that line too and that can be dangerous and and oh, just yeah. the, the topography how it can affect it so if it's in a canyon how that fire can do some weird stuff in different like box canyons and, and where there's different wind drafts and the things that the things that you folks have to understand as a um, a firefighter in those situations, I think, is is pretty is pretty intense. It, well, keep in mind, I'm fairly low on the totem pole as a firefighter. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I'm not a, a very advanced, you know, fire uh, behavior ana- analyst, or I'm not a divisional commander or something like that. Someone who's fought, like been a career wildland firefighter for ten or fifteen years is going to have a much stronger grasp of the potentials, mm. uh, implications, and, and movements of a certain fire right. than me, who's going to stand there and go, well, uh, it's burning right there. Maybe I could cut a few trees down and try to contain it. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> right. that's the extent of my knowledge, right? I'm not, I'm very low to put a pole here. Sure. So. <laughs> you're, mu- you're much higher than me, though, so it's super well, interesting. So it's like, yeah. encouraging, I guess. Right on. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, I, I, I blocked off some time. I just wanted to like talk about adventure in general. Um, I, I, I think from my own perspective, the, the times where um, I feel most fulfilled or um, just feel like really good about myself is when I do hard things, you know, whether that's a challenge uh, through my career, a challenge as a, as a parent or a challenge like, um, like just a physical challenge. Like, you know, a couple weeks ago, you know, I had the chance to, to, to ride my bike with my brother and my dad, you know, um, you know, two days, 200 miles and just, just th- getting just, I guess, getting out and pushing myself outside my comfort zone. And oh, yeah, that, that is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just I'm just interested to to hear how you've kind of normalized that a little bit, because I think you do have to kind of like um, get a mental framework for that, you know, for what you do, it, it has to become just a, a normal thing, but it may not be normal for other people. Is there any like tips that you kind of use right now? Like say you get, I, I, I just think about if I'm in the woods right now, right outside, um, you know, I, I could get spooked, you know, like something, you know, sure. a deer goes through and next thing you know, you think it's like, you know, a Yeti or something. <laughs> like, sure, are there no, times where you have to just kind of like stay cool and stay calm and just, yeah, I mean, I think for me, I like you said, there's a sort of, I, I could sort of see a spectrum above this, you mm-hmm. know? So I live my life in the backcountry, you know, in the, in the Rocky Mountain West. 
Mm-hmm. And so in my day job, let's just say, I have like 0.0% concern for hiking up one of my trails and patrolling it and, you know, making public contact. Right. Like, I'm, I, I'm just as comfortable doing that as I am, like, sitting at a desk. Right. Right? So, like, that's my comfort zone. And for a lot of people, that's a big adventure, right? But mm-hmm. that's okay. It doesn't, it's not, it's not a competition. It's about what speaks to you individually. Mm-hmm. What, it, what an adventure means to you is all that really matters. Right. So, for me to get that, you know, feeling of adventure, you know, I need to take myself out of my home forest, you know, like mm-hmm. I need to go, you know, to steamboat or somewhere where I don't feel as comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe do an activity that I don't, um, it's not just hiking for me, right? You know, so an adventure is these days, you know, more multi-sport for me. Is it, can I, you know, drive my vehicle up a challenging four-wheel drive road and then from there, hike to a backcountry lake to go fishing. Right. You know, like, that is an adventure that I'm interested in because it's multifaceted, and it takes me a little bit out of what I really know, mm-hmm. you know, and it incorporates different parts that are all different individual adventures. You know, if the drive there is good, the hike to the lake is good, the fishing at the lake is good, then you do it all in reverse. So, I, to me, adventure is going to embody multiple faceted things. And that's okay. That's what I enjoy about it. You know, it's about pushing your comfort zone and maybe getting a little lost, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, right on. Um, so uh, one thing I, I, I did want to, before we roll into, I have some really interesting questions or, or thoughts about, um, you know, food and, and things like that. But I, I just wanted to kind of to circle back to um, public lands. I think in some quarters, um, people see public lands as maybe threatened or um, in, in some areas, you know, threatened in yeah. in this age. Is there anything um, that you've seen in, in your job that like we can do to um, better preserve those areas? Because I think of areas around us that are invaluable. Um, right. And, and, and I, I want to do more to be a steward of those, you know? Yeah. You know, I think when people... When I think about threatened public lands, you know, the most important thing, or the first thing that comes to mind is the controversy over Bears Ears National Monument. Yes, I was thinking of that. You know, so, you know, Bears Ears is a beautiful and amazing place. I spent lots of time exploring that whole area in Utah, and it's just stunning. Mm. Just stunning. It's full of prehistoric and historic artifacts, beautiful slot canyons, high desert mesas. It's an incredible place. And so, below the surface is a lot of oil, right? Right. And so, the issue that I have, like, no one is, well, no one is successfully proposing that you take public lands away from the people. Right. The idiot in Utah decide, keeps pushing some dumb bills forward, but they're not really gaining any, any traction, so I don't think that's really a threat. But yeah. the issue with, with specifically, like, mineral extraction is, is a tough one because it's all driven by politics. Yeah, right. And I and I think I think that there really isn't a lot of threat per se to like losing large swaths of public land. Mm-hmm. But the threat to public land is how we're managing them and what we are allowing corporations to do on them. Yeah, right. It's still going to be public land, mm-hmm. but it's going to have eighty oil derricks all over the darn thing. You yeah, know, right. and that's going to have obvious significant detrimental effects to the ecology and like flora and fauna that live there, you know? So you can't, you can all oh, great, it still belongs to the people, but it, there's nothing that lives there anymore because we just drilled the crap out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think the best way to defend it is to be politically active, mm-hmm. to call your congressman, to sign petitions, to mm-hmm. stay abreast of current issues in, the, in natural resources so that when the time comes, you can be an advocate for public lands and for the planet. That's a critical need right now for anybody. Because there are administrations that do not have those values, and the only value they have is the money in their pocket. And that is not an acceptable long-term strategy. Yeah, and and, and as I think of, uh, you know, our ancestors that have had the forethought to um, set aside these lands, I I guess I'm just 
proud of those people. You know, I, I'm the, the, our local trails are called the Calabas Perry Trails, and I guess I'm just um, amazed at how there's nice houses all around them. And, and building developers, I'm sure, would love to put houses in there. But right. someone a long time ago thought it would be a great idea to just put trails in there. And now exactly. when you're in there, you have no idea where you are, you know? You can't see a house. <laughs> and and remember, great. that was sort of the exact, that was sort of the exact founding principle of the United States Forest Service. Not, not the Park Service, that was a little bit separate. Mm -hmm. But the Forest Service specifically, you know, in, in the, at the turn of the century, it, like ni 1900, the most of the West was owned by a handful of timber barons. Individual people owned most of the West. Right. And it was all timber. It was all the money was in timber. And so a incredibly forward-thinking individual, Teddy Roosevelt, decided that there's no way that people can own this land. It deserves to belong to the people. So he created forest reserves mm. that belonged to the people that were still managed for the greatest good. It's still okay to harvest timber. It's still okay to harvest minerals mm -hmm. on these public reserves, but that's what they were. They were reserved for the people, not an individual person's land. Yeah, we got to stand up. Uh, speaking of harvesting, I, I'm, I'm fascinated in, in, in food. Um, I think it was about like two years ago, I just I made this um, switch where I was like, you know what, I'm done with um, factory food. I don't like yeah. to talk about that so much because um, sometimes it, it, it it separates people. I don't want, I don't like people to feel bad about the choices that they make, but that was one like kind of actionable item that I was able to make and say, you know, what? I just want to like, um, get a little bit closer to my food and, and with the idea that I'm okay with, um, like we, we, we harvest, you know, chickens that we grow here and, um, I'm okay with having to take an animal and use that as a way to help our family. And some people aren't comfortable with that and that's okay. But I wanted to kind of get your stance on um, food and in the wilderness and, and how your relationship is yeah. with it right now. I, I, you and I are a lot alike in that regard. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I think it's great that people. I'm a little bit different than you. I'm, I'm more in the favor of challenging someone on their food sources. Oh, okay. I'm you not know? there yet. I'm not brave it, enough like you, man. <laughs> it, well, it's okay. It's like, it's like if you're gonna eat meat, that's great. Like. Most people eat meat, and we, we're supposed to eat meat, right? We have canine teeth. That's how we've evolved. Right. How, however, if you're going to eat meat, I think that it's up to the individual to have a responsibility or at least a conversation with themselves about, do I feel bad about this? And if you don't, whatever, that's fine. Right. That's, that's your prerogative. But at least people should be educated about where their food comes from at a basic level. And most people just think that the food comes from the store and they don't think about any food than that. Mm -hmm. They don't, they've never driven through Kansas and seen cows packed into a feedlot as tight as they can be eating grain out of a trough and that's their whole life. Right. You know, yeah. that's, that is an unacceptable source of food for me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, me too. I, a while ago, I, first I started with this great website called Eat Wild. It's called eatwild.com, and uh -huh. you can go to that site, and it will show you sources of farm-to-table meat in your local area, right. which is great. And so I started doing that. So I started sourcing my protein from places that I could at least understand where it came from a little more locally. And then at some point, I decided about 10 years ago that if I wanted to have a relationship with my food, the best way to have it was to procure that food myself. Right. And, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts. I don't come from a hunting family. Um, I was a, a big back, backpacker, a big backcountry hiker. You know, I, I was comfortable in the woods, mm -hmm. but I, I didn't have the knowledge to find the critters, you know? Right. <laughs> so that was a big learning curve for me to transition from, a recreationalist in the outdoors to a, a, a woodsman to be someone that can read the land and gather knowledge in pursuit of game. Yeah. And that to me was a huge growth 
in, in, a, in my personality and who I am. And, and I love to be able to be a successful hunter. And the idea to me that I can an animal and elk in the Rocky Mountain West that has known nothing but living in the fresh air and the wild country as it's supposed to. And then if I can do my job and give it a, a quick and painless as possible end mm-hmm. and then responsibly care for that animal and its meat and bring that home and eat off that for the rest of the year, that to me is is a food system that I can get behind because that relationship between trigger to table for me is one of the most important things in my life. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's well said. I th- I think that one one thing that this the last two years has really showed me is um is that as as humans we um we evolved under an environment of of scarcity, and um and I think it it's taught me to be okay with um maybe not having a meal, like you know it, always being in abundance is maybe not something that we are we need you know there's abundance all around us you know so it's kind of cool for me to tap back into that scarcity and be it's like okay you know if we're gonna have um say we have you know 30 chickens to eat through we're probably not gonna burn through them in two weeks you know like it's it's okay if we have to um you know have a little bit less of one thing to you know and and we're gonna be okay and we are okay and i've I've never felt better No, you're totally, you're totally right. I, I'm very proud of the fact that I, I haven't bought like a steak at Safeway or at the grocery store in over five years. Yeah, right. Um, and that's not all because I'm like the world's greatest hunter. Sure. I don't want you to like misunderstand that, but I have chosen to have a relationship with my food that in that regard, that means I will take food from my local area. So, um, there are years that I don't harvest an animal. Right. You know, maybe I'll get a deer, but not an elk. You know, and so I am fortunate enough to have created relationships with my local fish and wildlife officers, mm-hmm. who know that if they are, for example, dealing with a roadkill moose, that they have someone that they can call that will go out and harvest that animal and make sure that it gets utilized. Oh, that's cool! And I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So I've. I've built relationships with my local fish and wildlife officers to ensure that the animals, the meat that I that I have that I can procure, if I'm unsuccessful in my hunt, mm-hmm. typically at least once a year I get a phone call that says it's always at two in the morning too yeah. that says, "Hey, we got a you know a moose or an elk hit by a, ca- a car. Do you want it?" Right. No. And people have this weird uh, stigma about roadkill that mm-hmm. it's like less good for some reason but that animal died in the same fashion that the hamburger on your plate did right you know so i hate the fact that it was going to sit on the side of the road and get pecked at mm-hmm. you know so why shouldn't we utilize that yeah i think that's super and for me um it's so cool to to hear that because it's just it really comes down to thinking outside the box. I think the one thing that I I want people to know is that for me it's like not a purity test, you know, like this is my own personal journey. So that's why I don't like to talk about it so much because um I don't I want feel I knew, I want everyone to be on their own journey and right. maybe if they if, think you know, maybe if they see something they can be inspired, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You yeah. know, they, they should at least have a a basis of knowledge. Yeah, in the right. journey, they don't have to be on the journey, but they at least should have an understanding. I think is my is my my thing. Yeah, no, yeah, I think you you're know? right on. It's it's not enough. It's it's not enough in 2020 to be ignorant about where your food comes from. Yeah, right, right. And if you're really on a journey of self discovery, there should be you know uh, a half a dozen or a dozen things that you're trying to 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 get better right. at and sort out um, for sure. So I want to jump in, Andy, to. Um, this kind of a, it's not really, I call it a lightning round, but in my experience with interviewing people from all over the U.S., um, it's been cool. Uh, it's not really a lightning round, but so what, the first question really is, um, are there any material things in your life that you find indispensable? Uh, 
because I have like a normal life, you know, like everybody else, but then four days a week I'm living very simply out of a backpack. Right. You know, so there's like two different schools of thought in that regard. Um, but I think material things that I couldn't live in my life without, you know, are things like a good pair of hiking boots, mm-hmm. um, a good map, and for me personally, it's um, a way to harvest my food, right. whether whatever firearm that might be. But those are important items to me, but they're not like, I don't know, how do you define something that you need to survive with? I can drive them out down to the grocery store and don't need anything to survive with. Yeah, right. So that's, that's a challenging question for me because I, like, I choose this lifestyle, you know, of grabbing these items that are intrinsic to my survival, quote unquote, but in mm. reality, I need none of that. Yeah, right. You know? Right. So you, you, so could, you could go th- with very few material things. Um, but I guess the things that you that you've just indicated, like um, you know your your good hiking boots, map, f- maybe a firearm, those make your world infinitely um, probably you know more comfortable. <laughs> it, I think they're just intrinsic to who I am. Yeah, right, right. You know, like if if, if I'm going to have a, a day off, you know, I'm going to be working in my greenhouse, mm-hmm. or if it's the fall, like in two days is the upland bird open season and and goose season. You know, if I have my time off, I'm going to be trying to procure procure food. Right, right. That's just a a passion and a hobby for me. Mm -hmm. So whatever happens to be in season is probably what I'll be going for. Nice. But that's not always the purpose of my wanderings, you know? Like, I don't know what you know about grouse hunting, but it's more of a long walk in the woods toting a shotgun than it is to the opportunity to bring home food. Yeah, but it's, right. it's just it's just that it's it's the ability to walk through the forest and analyze the the situation around you, maybe scare up dinner and bring it home, and maybe scare up dinner and totally whiff the shot, you know, yeah, and, right. and think about it the whole way home. But the point is, is that's part of the lifestyle that I enjoy and I've created for myself. Right on. So, um, are there any books that have been really important to you? Um, I wrote, I wrote that, you know, most people read books more than once if they're really important, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Is there anything that stands sure. out to you that's, that was kind of uh, formative? So when I was a kid, the most formative book I ever read, and I read it so many times, was My Side of the Mountain by Gene Craighead George. Yes, I love it. That book probably more than any other book created a formative mindset of a life in the woods. Mm-hmm. What, um, I, I, I just started reading that to, um, to our kids and they, they seem to, to like it. Okay. I, I remember just devouring it multiple times, but is there anything yeah. now as like a, um, as someone that's, you know, well, well versed in the woods that stands out in that book that's like kind of, um, not accurate or I always wondered about that you know like could you really make a fishing hook out of um, you know twigs like that or, or hollow out a oh, yeah, tree I don't know, you know? I've never <laughs> <laughs> I've never tried I've never tried I remember um, all that think, stuff man. that's, that's yeah, an incredible book I think some of my more recent books that I've read, I read a lot because I spent a lot of time in the tent um, right that's true is, you know I read a lot I've read a lot of biographies on, on Roosevelt and on the history of the public lands movement and conservationism. Mm-hmm. I think just recently, I'd, I'd say in the last six months, the, one of the best books that I've read is a book called That Wild Country by Mark Kenyon. Okay. And it was a really good like look on modern Western conservation ethics and the history of how those came about, and I really enjoyed it. That's cool. What about... um? Do you get a chance to listen to any music out there? Any albums right now that you're you're into? Well, my my music tastes are always evolving, but I think the lightning round question was, what is one album you could always listen through? Yeah, straight through. Yeah, so the one album I could always listen straight through would be Layla by Eric Clapton. Oh right. I don't know if I've ever listened to albums like I, I mean I've heard the the singles off of that, but not not no, the whole just, album. The, the 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 entire product of Layla is great. It's great. 
What's the what's the best meal you've ever cooked? You know, honestly, I I think I'm gonna have to go uh, with elk Wellington. Really? So it's got the pastry puff on the outside. Yep. It's all wrapped. And all wrapped. So you start with, like you said, a base of puff pastry. Oh right, yeah. And and then you create uh, onion and mushroom bourbon sauce. Yes. And you lay that inside the puff pastry. Right. And then, since it's elk, which is a very lean meat, it's not very fatty. Mm-hmm. Um, when I field dress a big game animal, I always harvest the call fat, that's C-A-U-L, call fat. And that is a layer of fat that's inside the chest and abdominal cavity. Oh, okay. And it looks like a spider web. It's, it's a thin sheet, mm-hmm. basically. And so you use that to wrap up large muscle groups when you cook with wild game because it has no fat content, oh, right? Right. Like, like wild game, like deer, elk, and moose are like 2% fat, you mm-hmm. know? So when you cook it, sometimes it gets really dry or it can suck the moisture out of whatever it's touching. Yeah, and right. so when you wrap it up in its own fat, basically, that will melt out and keep that meat moist. So yeah, puff pastry, Mushroom, bourbon sauce, a layer of fat, which if you're using beef, you, you wouldn't need that. And then uh, I used an elk tenderloin, which is, there's only two on any animal. Yeah. And so they're a specialty, special cut, the, the most tender cut of meat on any animal. And you wrap that sucker all up like a cigar. Yeah. And you bake it. In, uh, it you get the golden puff pastry on the outside, and then like medium, medium rare tenderloin on the inside. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> sounds great so um have you had anyone this this is the last part of the lightning round but have you had anyone that's really um inspired you and is, is there any anything that stands out that that they did the people that inspire me the most are the ones that just follow their passion mm-hmm. they're never the richest people uh but they're always the happiest yeah, right. That I can't think of one specific person off the top of my head. Uh-huh. Um, but there have been people throughout my career that I just like work with or, or work or work near and I'm just like, That guy is just happy. Yeah. You know? Right. And that stuff doesn't happen immediately. Mm-hmm. You know? But I think that if you are have a general direction you like working outdoors, great. And you just keep exploring that and don't get comfortable. Yeah. Then opportunities will show themselves to you if you work at it. Mm-hmm. They will happen. You know? It's not about knowing exactly the thing that you want. It's just about working in a certain direction and working hard and having faith. Yeah. I, I really... Man, I, I, I hear what you're saying there. Um, it, I, and I have to go on the side here on this because um, I, I, I've had friends that, you know, they look around and see maybe maybe not so many recent friends. A lot of my college friends are great. Um, but I've had people or acquaintances say, you know, this, this area stinks or just negative, right? And I think it's fascinating, the, the idea that there's nothing that makes something special other than how you view it, you know? Um, so you, you, you could turn your backyard into, you know, a, a special place, you know, um, or you can turn your local hiking trails that only has a thousand feet of elevation gain into something that's really special. And, and I think, I think that resonates in, in what you kind of said there. It's like someone that's passionate, that that's brave and is, is understanding of, that the, the moment that they're in is important. And um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's inspiring for me too. That's people that are really living it and pushing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I, I just wanted to, to touch, be, it, it's fascinating right now how fast things are going. Um, oh, t- technology yeah. is at the center of, of so much growth. And you're a person that spent the last decade um, advocating for, helping people in, and kind of protecting the wilderness. And, and we talked about what, what that means earlier. But 
has has technology rolled into your life in in a oh, yeah. um, in a in a big way? Of course it is, and you know, it's, it's, technology does transfer into the backcountry. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, there's okay, there's there's two sides to this coin, um, and that's actually something I think we should touch on. So this might give us a little more fodder for later. But right. technology is having an extremely negative impact mm-hmm. right now on public lands, specifically on public lands. And, and I'm specifically speaking to social media. I have an area in my district called Crater Lake mm-hmm. that is, it is a incredibly stunning, absolutely beautiful backcountry lake and vista with a huge, you know, granite monolith hulking over this, this uh, gorgeous backcountry lake at Treeline. And it is iconic. It's beautiful. Right. And I have watched over the last 10 years the amount of attention this place has gotten mm-hmm. specifically due to its picture on social media. Right. Tag it. And people go to that place just for the picture, mm-hmm. not for their personal enjoyment and fulfillment of being in a natural place and being somewhere beautiful, they go to get the picture. Right. And that's the problem that I have right now with technology in the natural world, mm-hmm. is that every time you share a place and then tag its name or location, yeah. you ruin that place in perpetuity because it cannot be undone. Right. Technology, as far as per- protecting the natural world mm-hmm. is absolutely killing it. Technology is killing the natural world right now, specifically for the, the picture, right? right? But the other side of that coin is how technology benefits me in my everyday life. And like, you know, my smartphone is the best GPS ever invented. Right. I know exactly where I am at all times, and I have all this information right at my fingertips which is incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. And I use a tablet when I'm doing surveys. Part of the job as a manager of wilderness is to monitor man-made impacts in that wilderness area. Yeah, right. So I catalog and rank all, let's say, campsites or any other man-made impact in that wilderness. So I travel with a tablet and I'm surveying. We have like a a set um, ranking for for campsites mm-hmm. in wilderness, and so we rank them, and then decide if they're legal or illegal, which means that they're too close to the water or the trail or things like that, right? Or how um, how large are they? How much impact is there damage to the local trees because people like hacked off the branches for firewood and things yeah, like that? Right. So we're using electronics or technology to catalog these things. Mm-hmm. And then it geotags that location. So when I get back to the office, it uploads all that information to ArcGIS. And I have a living model of my wilderness area with all these pins and all these rankings. Mm-hmm. And so then, then I can utilize that data to prioritize restoration efforts for the next season. Yeah, right. Yeah. It, it, I think that's a, what a, what a fascinating observation that is for you. Like, um, on one hand, you're seeing how it, it maybe is drawing people that aren't that don't have the framework of like outdoor ethics in terms of pack it in, right. pack it out, leave no trace, right. um, res- respect that area. Not there. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> yeah, and um, it, so it, it, is that. I, I I could see how that would be a general theme too. It, I, I know. Um, I don't know if this is like you know not everyone had the same upbringing that I did with regard to um, being brought into the park at an early age, but like I can see how um, working with a lot of um, young kids in school, I could see how the way they leave the halls at the end of the day may not be the way you want to leave a trail. For instance, you know um, the idea that the wrappers just get picked up and and this isn't so much of a maybe um, you know, criticism, uh, you don't want to sound like the old guy, you know, saying get off my yard, but it's kind of like the idea hey, that those like rappers that. need That's... to get picked up, you know? <laughs> I, no, I, I totally understand. Like, I, I see I see a pretty obvious difference, you know, 
in age and upbringing and ethics mm-hmm. every day. You know, people like you and I, they're in their 30s um, and a little bit older. They probably heard it from their parents about, you know, this is, this is how you treat the natural world. And a lot of younger outdoor recreationalists did not hear that when they were growing up. Yeah, that's what you're saying. They, they were not taught to pick up after yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a campsite and found a bag of trash in the middle of it. Yeah, right. They just figure, oh, somebody else will carry this out. Sure. That's, that's so selfish. Yeah. My, my daughter, um, my daughter, when she was two, I took her to a basketball game and, um, she wanted to stop on the way home. So we got fast food. She, and she ordered something and, and then, um, we're going down the North way and I hear her, her rear window go down. She, she, she tossed it out the window and you know, she was two and she thought that that'd be a good spot for it. And, uh, so we're, we're barreling down the highway, you know, going 70 miles an hour and this happy meal goes bouncing down the road. And that was a learning moment, you know, at two. And, and I think if, if she were here, you know, across me right now, she, she'd remember that day, you know? Um, and those are so, those are important moments to have when you're two, not when you're 22, you know? I totally agree with you. It's just like, I think that people just have this understanding that, you know, Oh, it's not my problem. Well, it's your responsibility. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's cool. That, and then I think that gives me a goal too um, in terms of in in our own local trails and working with um, young people that I get to work with, just trying to build that a little bit. Um, so and that, that kind of leads me to the last idea too of um, just being a good steward of the earth. And I think we hit upon this a little bit earlier in terms of being aware of um, how you can be politically involved, how you can be uh, involved in your own local area. Um, so yeah. kind of like locally and globally. But I was just wondering as someone that um, your your work area is in, in a lot of ways um, the great outdoors. I was just, I kind of wanted to, um, you know, uh, we, we did talk about that a little bit, but I just wanted to recognize that for you too. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think, it's up to everyone to decide their own level of being a good steward. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to each individual person? Yeah. You know, I'm happy, you know, I have a greenhouse. I procure my own meat, which is one of the worst sources of carbon in right now on the planet is yeah. beef cattle, mm-hmm. right? So I'm really happy with that, that I don't buy into that system, mm-hmm. you know? But I don't drive a Prius. Right. You know, I, I drive a lifted Tacoma. It, it gets 15 miles to the gallon. So there's got to be some sort of a a, a, a place for everybody mm-hmm. on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think the most important part, again, is for people to have that conversation with themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay? Is, is this a priority for me? Okay, great, it is. Because it should be for everybody, you know. But how can they make a difference in their own life and, and make that so it's, it's good for them? You know, how can everyone be an advocate for the outdoors or for the planet? There's lots of different ways. You could be an advocate for the planet just by how you vote, mm-hmm. you know, or just by where you donate. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to donate to um, the NRDC, great, you know, and that makes you happy and that makes you feel like you're a steward of the planet. Good job, you know. Yeah. But if you want to swear off plastic for, for a year and be vegan, great. That's how you can help the planet. Mm-hmm. But it's up to the person to have that discussion with themselves and I think and, and decide what that means to them and how can they achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. Because I think we can take a page out of um, you know our, our ancestors' books and if we have the foresight to, to do some of those things, hopefully in yeah. 100 years people can look back and say, Oh my goodness, you know, these, these people had the foresight to realize that this was really important because if you can look at how fast things have gone, you can, you can, we can envision a time where, um, our outdoor space is, um, is, is not seen as important. And, and I, I never regret a day, you know, that I either don't get outside as early as I can, or we don't get the kids out. I mean, those are usually our best days. Um, there's, there's something to, to be said for being in that space and sometimes you you don't even you don't even know it until you 
you get out there. It's almost like you're okay right. inside, and then you, yep. you forget you have like that amnesia. You forget what what energy that gives you. So yeah, I'm, I have I'm, the same I'm thing. You. It's like you know, I have trouble sometimes just getting out. You know, mm-hmm. getting out of the house. Mm-hmm. And the moment you get out of the house and you step out of the truck and you're out in the world, you're like, oh, this is worth it. Yes. <laughs> yes. You, know? you just gotta get out. Yep, you gotta just do it. You gotta do it. And I don't care if that means going for a walk in the park, you know, yeah. or going on a, a backcountry elk hunt for two weeks. You know what I mean? Yes. Whatever that means to you, that, that it's, it's a means to an end. It's about having a relationship with nature and fulfilling that need within you. Because everybody has it, but not everybody knows that they need it. Yeah, that first step is like the hardest one. Yeah. <laughs> So do you, do you have any recommendations? I know you talked about uh, hiking boots earlier. Do any, any like, um, I, I, maybe I don't want you to recommend like your favorite hike. So, you know, we don't want hundreds of people, you know. Or you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't get them out of me anyways. Uh, you, know, you know I have like a dozen listeners, right? So here's, here's how to find a good hike. You know, the way to, the way to do it is not on the internet. The way to find a good hike is to figure out where you want to go hiking, right? Mm-hmm. In a general area. Okay. Like for you, like, okay, I want to go up, you know, in upstate New York. Great. This area. Go get a map and look at the map and go, oh, look, this trail goes over here and then it makes a little loop and then it comes back. Let's do that. Right. That's how you find a good hike. Not by looking at some app with star ratings. Right. Because I guarantee you, Every single hike that's got five stars is not a solitude experience. Yeah, right, right. The way that you find great places to go is by using a map. Yeah, use a map. Makes me want to get my maps out right now. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess I just want to thank... Um, well, well, Kevin and, and Kaylee, people who I care a ton about for, um, you know connecting me with with you Andy um it's interesting you sure. your career has gone in a different trajectory but I, I I share a lot of your passions and um and and I I respect and appreciate um you know the work that you've done and, and I'm sure will continue to do and yeah yeah most people most people have a, life, a lifelong love of the outdoors mm-hmm. not everyone gets the privilege of of spending their career in it I'm just one of the lucky few, but, you know, the idea of wilderness, you know, in quote, in air quotes, the idea of wilderness means different things to everybody. You know, to me, it means a very different thing than someone who can sit in their house and just know that it exists is enough. Mm-hmm. But it has to be there for all of everybody to actually enjoy it. Whether you just think that it's there and are happy that it exists, or you use it every day, still have to be there and and i think it's it's funny too like um for me when i'm when i'm doing things that i think are are most closely tied to maybe what um i you know my great 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 grandfather was doing you know in terms of like more natural things i I find myself more fulfilled and and and, and even when you know you're talking about animals i think animals when they're um, expressing their genes in the most natural way, like you just look at them and they're just totally at peace, you know? Like, um, so I mean, not to get back into the food thing again, but I, I think that as humans too, when we are expressing our genes in a, in a real natural way, maybe not yeah. being under fluorescent lights for uh, 11 hours a day, uh, sitting down, yeah. you know, like that's where I think we can be most um, at peace and, and, and happy. And I think that's, I know that's where I want to be. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, could, could do well with that too. But like you said, it's a privilege and it's something we have to fight for and advocate for. It doesn't just happen, I don't think. And a lot of things, you know, a big deal for me about getting outdoors is silencing that constant in, in, influx, right? Mm-hmm. Like we live in an age where you're always bombarded by everything. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're working on your computer or you're on your phone, it's just like everything's coming at you at once, right? And so... There's no time to actually think anymore. Mm-hmm. And if you can get outdoors, 
that's creating opportunities for you to actually think about your life and what you might want to do. You know what I mean? Because you don't have stimulus. When you can erase that stimulus coming at you, then you can actually think from within. That's mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Right on, man. Well, Andy, I, I appreciate your time. Um, it, is there any way, we talked about technology, <laughs> is there any way for people to like, uh, you know, keep up to date with what, um, whether it's the Wilderness Service or um, the National Park Service or the U.S. Forest Service or, or you personally? Is there, is there any? Sure. Uh, I mean, there's lots of different advocacy groups um, that I would encourage people to follow um, if you're into like Western water rights or you know Western wildlife. Mm-hmm. You can do your research and find organizations that resonate with you. For me personally, for organizations like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or mm-hmm. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, those are two specific organizations that are conservation organizations that promote you know land access and management of resources within the West and they do a great job at it. Right and on. I'm very interested in what they can and can't do, you know? Cool. If, if you're ever back East um, in this area, we'll have to go for a hike. We'll bring the whole crew out. We'll make it happen. You can count on it. Count <laughs> on it. All right, Andy. I, I appreciate it, man. Have a good one out there. Take care of yourself. Thanks, Bye. buddy. Yep. Yeah.